Hello there and welcome to another Paro seminar. Uh, for this seminar, what I want to do is build on some of the things I talked about last month. Uh, hopefully you saw last month, uh, it was recorded in a bar in LA. And in that talk, I was speaking about the notion of dasting. I started off with a story and I used that story as a way to explore the idea of an inherent unknowing at the heart of the other and within ourselves. So that was last month. What I want to do is actually tell the same story again and then add another layer onto that story. So instead of the usual way of doing things where people use different stories and different analogies to make the same point, I want to use the same story, but use it to make a different point, but a point that builds on all of the things that we were looking at in the last seminar. Over the course of the next 45 minutes or so, I want to look at what ideology is, how it's connected to the notion of idolatry. I want to explore how change occurs within us. And to do that, I want to contrast self-help with grace. So there's going to be a bit of theory, but also we're going to talk about what does it mean to change? What does it mean to be transformed? Or to use a different word, what does it mean to be saved? Right? To have a fundamental transformation of the heart. Um, so anyway, that's the plan. And I'll tell you the story again. Basically, it's a little parable about three people who die on the same day and they go to heaven to get interviewed by Jesus before they get in. There is this mystic, there's an evangelical pastor, and there's a fundamentalist. Well, while they're sitting there waiting, St. Paul comes out and he looks at the mystic and he says, okay, you go first. So the mystic gets up, goes into the interview room, St. Paul turns the little sign round, and the mystic's in there for about half an hour, 45 minutes. And he comes out with a smile on his face. And he says, oh, I knew I was wrong. I knew I was wrong. And then walks into heaven. Next up, it's the evangelical pastor. He goes into the interview room. The signs turned round, meeting in progress. And he's in there for about an hour. And when the door finally opens, he comes out and he's sweating and he looks unhappy and he's like, how could I have been so wrong? And then he walks in. So finally, it's the fundamentalist turn. He has this well-worn Bible, lots of highlights and underlining. And he goes into the room, the little signs turn around, and he's in there for about five hours. And finally, the door swings open and Jesus comes out and says, how could I have been so wrong? Right? Now, when I told that story in the seminar last month, I told everybody about how that was one of the first little parables that I ever told as a public speaker. And when I told it, I told it in the very naive way, which is the very manifest way that the story is one where we are supposed to identify with the mystic uh, rather than the fundamentalist. The fundamentalist is a kind of comedic figure. And that is true. Um, but that over the years, I've come to see the story in a different way, that the most radical figure in the story is the fundamentalist. And 
the fundamentalist, not through knowledge. In fact, that insight that Jesus was wrong was probably very disturbing for him if we put ourselves into the logic of the story. But that notion that the absolute God uh, has unknowing within itself uh, is something that has a fundamental insight into the nature of reality. And that's what I was looking at, as I say, last month. I made the distinction between what is called epistemological unknowing and ontological unknowing. So for the mystic and the evangelical, they both express epistemological unknowing. Uh, you take a philosopher like Merrill Westphal, this is something that he advocates. Uh, this is a type of humility in the face of infinity. There's things that we can know which are in the finite world, and then there's the infinite, the eternal, the absolute. And before that absolute, we do not know. This is also a very Pascalian position. And we contrast that with this much more disturbing, much more scandalous idea of ontological unknowing, which is the idea not simply that I don't know the absolute, but that there's an unknowing in the heart of the absolute itself. And that as we confront this dimension of unknowing that is in reality itself, something transformative occurs. Now, before I move on to that notion of transformation and why this story tells us something about the meaning of grace, of salvation, of change, uh, I want to just reference the idea that if this is true, if reality itself has a quantum dimension, i.e. a type of wave-particle duality, a type of asymmetry that kind of haunts everything from the political world to mathematics to physics, biology to subjectivity itself, then that means, well, a couple of things. Um, one, it means that the universe is not deterministic. So this is a philosophical argument for a type of freedom, not the type of freedom in which one argues that we can make decisions without uh, being moved by other influences, that somehow we are not within the web of cause and effect, but rather the idea that within the web of cause and effect that we find ourselves, there is some short circuit. There is something, but rather it's a new thing that stops everything from being in a closed loop, which stops everything from being connected to another effect, another effect, another effect. If we want to understand this a little bit better, we can think about the cosmological argument for the existence of God that was famously put in its probably most succinct form by Thomas Aquinas. For Aquinas, everything that we see in the world is the result of a cause. So in a way, he is arguing for a type of deterministic series of cause and effect within the universe. But then he says that there must be an uncaused cause that gets everything started. One cause that does not itself have a cause and then he says, this uncaused cause is what we call God. Now, in a similar way, in psychoanalysis, there is a notion that language 
is a series of signifiers that reference other signifiers. So there's no such thing as a word that has meaning outside of its relationship to other words. So when you open up a dictionary, for example, every signifier points to another signifier and they all keep pointing to each other in this web of language. But then Lacan says that there is what's called a master signifier. And a master signifier is a signifier that does not have a signifier that describes it or defines it. It's a type of signifier that gives meaning to, a, let's call it a language game, but itself lacks meaning. So for example, words like truth, justice, freedom, God, can be master signifiers. We can talk about truth and we can argue about it, we can write books about it. And then when we come to actually try to define what this word is that we are arguing about, we find ourselves always falling short. We cannot give it meaning. It is the word that everything else orbits around in terms of that discussion, but that word itself defies meaning. So it's a type of uncaused cause. And in a similar way, what this notion of ontological unknowing means is that in this web of cause and effect where everything is affected by everything else ultimately, there is one exception to that. And it is a type of abyss or asymmetry at the heart of all reality, that short circuit that just prevents everything from closing in on itself and allows for the possibility of novelty. Now, that's not the subject explicitly of this talk. I, will, I would like to do a talk on freedom, actually. I think I've done one recently or last year, but um, we'll maybe return to that theme of freedom. But I just want to say that if this is true, that all of reality is holy, and by holy, I mean is full of holes, um, has an abyssal dimension, then that means that there is, a there is a concept of freedom within that. We can build a philosophy of freedom, but it's not the freedom of I can freely choose something. It's more the idea that uh, something can occur within us that throws us off course, that throws us onto a new course, that we can be in a way kind of born again, um, put into a new set of circumstances. Uh, it's connected then with the unconscious, right? The, the most free dimension of us is a dimension in which we feel the least freedom, where we do something that means we lose our job. For example, we didn't mean to do that, we didn't want to do that, but this unconscious eruption within us threw us off our tracks and onto a new track. So this unconscious eruption is a type of manifestation of this freedom that is terrifying. I mean, we're te this freedom is not a nice thing. It's not something that uh, we like. I mean, Sartre talks about how we're condemned to freedom. And so many of us go to tarot cards or uh, fortune tellers or the Bible to try to find an answer or a friend, someone who'll tell us what we should do. But what is more important for this seminar is not the freedom dimension, but the idea that if ontological unknowing is correct, then 
there is an inherent alienation to life. That alienation is not some contingent thing that we can overcome, which is the promise of religion in its sacred and secular forms, but rather alienation is a reality that we must comport ourselves to, that we must find a way to even enjoy. In a way, traditional religion is always about saying that any experience of alienation that you feel is either a reality that you can overcome or an illusion that you can penetrate. That in reality, everything is one. A equals A. And you can either return to that oneness, that wholeness, that blessed state, or you don't have to return to it. You just have to see that you are already dwelling within it. So for example, in the work of Blaise Pascal, we are haunted by a sense of loss of an original blessing that makes life miserable because we want to return to that wholeness. We feel an abyss within us that nothing finite can fill. And so we are born with a longing for home. And home is an eternal fulfillment where desire is satisfied where our drives find their end point and where we can be satisfied. But in contrast to this idea of loss, which is that we are marked by something we once had, what I'm talking about here with ontological unknowing is lack. And the difference between lack and loss is that lack is a type of abyss that did not have an original wholeness. So with lack, there is no way to fill that, to find some sort of eternal satisfaction. But that's not bad news, that's good news. So for Blaise Pascal, life is ultimately miserable because we cannot fill this abyss that once did not exist. But in someone like Lacan, this abyss being an essential part of us is not just the source of our misery, but also the source of our enjoyment. And the word that is used for this is jouissance. There is something painful about sacrifice and about dissatisfaction and about anxiety. And also there is something enjoyable about those things as well, something that gives us pleasure. So for example, in a relationship, if there's no chaos, if there's no struggle, if there's no sacrifice that's part of it, what people will do is they will introduce chaos in some potentially unhealthy way. That chaos, if it's not healthily in the relationship, has to be brought in because we have a desire for desire itself. Uh, interestingly, both Pascal and C.S. Lewis draw on an argument that all of the desires we find within ourselves have a potential satisfaction we feel thirsty because there is something we can drink. We feel hungry because there is something we can eat. We feel sexual desire because sex is possible. And while we may be somewhere where we cannot access sex or water or food, the desire for them is evidence that they can be satisfied. And so both Lewis and Pascal use this to say that we also find within ourselves a desire for the transcendental.
And so they say this points to the possibility that this infinite desire within us that no finite thing can fulfill can be fulfilled. But the response to that is to say that to be human is to not simply have animalistic desires for certain things to be filled. We also have a particular type of desire for desire itself. And this following Freud is called drive. Drive is a type of desire for desire that finds satisfaction in dissatisfaction. Uh, it is seen in the gambler who continues to addictively gamble or the person who is always buying a different house and a bigger house and wants more and more and more. It's something that can't be satisfied, but where we get pleasure from the lack of satisfaction. Uh, the idea of the hunt is a great example of this, where the enjoyment is in actually trying to get the animal. Famously, we have Wiley e. Coyote, who uh, is eternally chasing the roadrunner and gets enjoyment out of the frustration, otherwise he would stop. I was doing a course recently on Pascal and I use this as an example because in an episode of Family Guy, Wiley e. Coyote in a cutaway is seen to actually catch the roadrunner and he's amazed and it cuts to him in his kitchen with a friend and they're eating the roadrunner and he's like, oh, this is amazing this tastes so good and his friend asks him you know what are you going to do now and Wiley Coyote says well I don't know um, I'm sure something will come up and then it basically cuts to him feeling meaningless until he tries to kill himself with his catapult mm. oh this is delicious I, I mean you know it's like when you work for your meal when you really work for it it just tastes that much better you know so what are you gonna do now huh never really thought about it been chasing this damn bird for 20 years. I'm not really trained for anything else. I guess I kind of let my life get away from me. <laughs> well, I'm sure something will turn up. Okay, uh, that's a pastrami on rye, uh, pasta salad, uh, two Diet Cokes. No, 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 it was one Coke and one Diet Coke. Oh, God, I'm sorry. Well, we've been waiting an hour. I know, I'm sorry. Well, what the hell kind of place is I'm it? I'm sorry, I God damn it, I'm sorry! All right, I'm just having some f***ing identity issues right now, and I, I can't think straight, and I, just get off my back, because you don't know what it's like. Wiley, you're fired. Can forgive me for this. And interestingly, it actually ends with him finding religion, um, which is a, a very Pascalian end to that, uh, because for Pascal, religion or faith can offer us the satisfaction that no finite thing can. And then all of a sudden, it hit me. I knew who I wanted to be. And I untied myself from that catapult, and here I am. Well, that is such a relief. I know, I know. So, if you have about 45 minutes, I'd like to talk to you about the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, s***. So, if alienation is part of the very nature of reality itself, and therefore alienation is part of what it means to be human, that we cannot overcome it, 
then what do we do? Do we just sit back and realize we're always going to be alienated? There's always going to be a certain dissatisfaction to life, a certain uh, sacrifice, a certain impossibility. Uh, and by the way, that connects with Schopenhauer. I mean, Schopenhauer's name for that was the will to life. For Schopenhauer, when you reflect on what it is to be human, you encounter an eternal dissatisfaction this movement that means that we are never satisfied. Now, Schopenhauer was actually pretty pessimistic about that. He felt that this was a source of some sort of misery. Uh, in a way, he was a type of uh, secular Pascalian in that way. So if we take a type of Pascalian or Schopenhauerian view of this, we might despair of this contemporary life because it will just be full of dissatisfaction. However, there's a different way of going about this. The idea that yes, alienation is inherently part of what it means to be a subject, but there is a way to comport ourselves to alienation that is productive, that is transformative, not just for us, but for society as a whole. Now, before we look at exactly why that is, I now want to turn our attention to ideology. So what is ideology? Building on everything I've said here, Ideology can be seen as that which covers over the holy dimension of reality and subjectivity. And again, I use the word holy in the sense of full of holes, uh, but also with that connotation that maybe this is the holy dimension of reality, as in the sacred dimension of reality. And ideology is precisely that which covers over the lack. Now, how does ideology do that? It does it by turning lack into loss. This is basically ground zero of ideology. It says that your alienation is something that can be overcome if you have enough sex, if you purchase the right product, if you have the right religion, if you take the right drugs, you can find this wholeness and completeness. So that is ideology. It takes the inherent alienation of reality and it says, no, that is a contingent thing that you can overcome. Now, that wouldn't be an issue <laughs> if uh, it worked. If ideology gave us a plan for how to be happy and content and overcome our dissatisfactions, then that would be fantastic. The problem is ideology does the opposite. The closer you get to the thing that supposedly will fix everything, the more frantic you can become. That's why a lot of people self-sabotage at the very moment that they're going to get that promotion or get the relationship that will work or get the contract that will make a difference in their life. That very point when they're at the edge of getting what they want, something blows up because in a way, the, the enjoyment is in not having rather than having. Okay, so I want to give you a good example of how ideology works. And so I want to reference the 1988 movie, They Live. So nice and contemporary. I really recommend you watch it. Recently, I just did an exposure event. Exposure is a monthly film theory group that I'm part of. And uh, I did They Live. Uh, so I would recommend you watch it. It's, it's a beautiful example of emancipatory cinema. And just to give you a little bit of background to it, it's set in the 1980s. 
this guy called Nada, who is just this uh, homeless guy who drifts into L.A. looking for work. He discovers that aliens are among us. He finds these glasses. And when you put the glasses on, you can see the aliens. But you can also see that the aliens have put messages everywhere that say, obey authority, marry and reproduce, sleep, consume, don't question. All of this, all of these messages are everywhere. And as soon as you put the glasses on, you see a billboard and the billboard disappears and behind it you see consume. You see do not question authority. You see obey. And when you have the glasses on for too long, it gives you this real kind of headache. Um, now, I want to use this to help describe what ideology is. And this will bring us to my critique of self-help and a way to understand the transformative power of grace. So in this movie, we can think of three interconnected dimensions. There is everyday reality that people are living where they're just consuming and they're working in their jobs and they're feeling pretty alienated and they're just having their relationships and they're glued to the television. So that's everyday mundane reality. Then there is ideology and ideology is all the billboards, the magazines, the movies, the TV shows, the educational system, everything that is giving 
a sense of how life could be. So whenever you look at all these adverts in the movie, it's things like, you know, holidays to the Caribbean, it's, it's aspirational stuff, it's magazines that are telling you to enjoy your life, that you can consume products, buy televisions, buy cigarettes, buy alcohol, whatever it is. These are magazines and billboards and TV shows that are basically telling you how to overcome your alienation. And then there is what we can call surplus enjoyment. The surplus enjoyment is what you see when you put on the glasses. And now I'm following Slavio Šizek here, who has written really brilliantly on the movie They Live. And he talks about this dimension as surplus enjoyment, because what he says is the glasses show you what you're really enjoying. It shows you what is keeping you hooked into mundane, everyday reality. Because what these aliens are doing is they're trying to make us all into passive sheep so that they can basically take over the planet, use it for its resources, and then kind of move on. And in the movie, it says by 2025, they will have effectively taken over the entire planet. So we're two years away. Uh, I think they might be ahead of schedule by the looks of things. But anyway, um, so you've got mundane reality, you've got ideology, and behind the ideology, you see the surplus enjoyment, what connects people to their mundane reality and stops them from questioning authority, stops them from becoming revolutionary subjects. Okay, now... What's really interesting, right, is if the glasses show you your surplus enjoyment, and surplus enjoyment, I should just define that. Surplus enjoyment is a type of excessive enjoyment that arises as a byproduct of some sort of utilitarian pleasure. So, for example, uh, a child is uh, nurturing at the mother's breast and is feeding and it's using its lips to feed. And then when that infant gets a bit older, they start to suck their thumb, right? The thumb sucking is a kind of enjoyment in the surplus, right? Originally, the sucking was what you did in order to get the milk. Now you enjoy the sucking itself. Uh, in the same way, uh, I think I've talked before about there were supposedly some people in Japan who, I think it was after the 2008 crash, would uh, go on holiday. But what they would do is they would plan the holiday, they would pack their bags, they would take the taxi to the airport, they would fly to the country, and then they would fly straight back. Because what they were doing is they were taking the enjoyment directly from the surplus, right? So we think that the enjoyment is the holiday, but actually it's the booking of the holiday, the packing, the getting everybody into the taxi, going to the airport and going there. And so by directly enjoying the surplus, uh, you kind of miss the, the, the thing that you should be enjoying. This in a way is perversion where in the perverse subject, and there's, a, there's an extent to which we're all perverse in a way, um, we begin to enjoy the surplus. So for example, you do certain rituals in order to have sex. You know, you go on a date, you buy a nice meal, you dress up, you have conversation. All of this is a, the type of thing that you have to do, the fantasy that you have to create in order to eventually go home and have sex. Uh, 
but sometimes we can actually end up enjoying all the bit up to the sex a lot more, right? So we kind of start to directly enjoy the the excess, the the thing that we were originally just trying was just utilitarian becomes the source of enjoyment itself. So it, that's one way of approaching what surplus enjoyment is. Again, the gambler is a good example where the enjoyment is not so much in the win, but what makes a gambler a gambler is that they enjoy the process of gambling itself and even the losing becomes its own sort of enjoyment. So in this movie, uh, freedom comes from putting on the glasses and there's this incredible scene in the movie that lasts about six minutes where Nada is trying to get his friend Frank to put on the glasses and see uh, that see through the ideology, see the surplus enjoyment that keeps us enslaved to the system. And Frank refuses to do this. And the way Shizek reads this, which I think is very, very good, is this shows how we do not want to be free. Uh, in a way, it's a cinematic representation of Frank, who kind of somewhere deep down thinks that he doesn't want to see, that, that maybe this guy Nara is seeing something and he doesn't want to be freed. He doesn't want to be emancipated. He wants to stay within the matrix. Um, that freedom is not something wonderful, like you see on Instagram or whatever, but the wonderful thing about freedom or emancipation is, no, it's horrific. <laughs> we want to fight against it. And we get a feeling of this whenever we maybe don't look at our bank account because we know what's in it. Well, we don't know what's in it, but we kind of have a suspicion. And as long as we don't look, uh, we can kind of keep ourselves in a certain ignorance. Or we don't phone the doctor's surgery after we've been there because we have a fairly good idea something's wrong and as long as we don't call we can maintain a certain kind of ignorance so in other words it's not an unknowing it's an unknowing that we are responsible for it's a knowing unknowing and in the movie that's very important because what the glasses show you is not what is unseen but what we see but pretend to ourselves we can't see it's a, we see it and yet we don't see it it's subliminal so the message is there to see consume obey don't question authority but we don't see that we see it so the glasses simply present to us something that we already know but disavow in ourselves and eventually nada gets frank to put on the glasses and you know he sees he sees the surplus enjoyment so here's the weird thing about the movie at first, is how come the surplus enjoyment is exactly what mundane reality is, right? The message behind the billboards is consume, sleep, obey, uh, all of these kind of things, which, which, which people are already doing, right? They're already doing those things. The ideology is get money, buy these products, retire at the beach, you know, all of these, that's the ideology. And yet what ties us to, what, what the ideology does is in a disavowed way, it gives us what we already have, right? Now, this is very, very key because in self-help, it's always about going from A to B, Right? You've got a certain life, you're doing a certain thing. How do you get from A, where you currently are, B, to where you want to be? So basically, at its core, self-help is always ideological because 
it either offers you something like better relationships, making more money, retiring early, whatever it is, it gives you that, or you bring that to the self-help and the self-help offers you various techniques to get there. But at the core, there is a movement from A to B. So in terms of they live, self-help is the billboards, the magazines, they're all the TV shows, the movies, they're all telling you in different ways how to get rid of alienation. And yet, weirdly, that's not what we want, right? And that's why just telling people how to get from A to B rarely works. Because if alienation is inherent to our subjectivity, it is also where our enjoyment comes from without knowing it. We enjoy dissatisfaction. We enjoy alienation. Now, alienation and dissatisfaction in contemporary society are completely destructive for most of us, right? So it's not, this is not a good enjoyment. But it's like there's something to dissatisfaction that we require as human beings. So when you look at something like a prosperity church and someone says, it doesn't work. Why do people go to prosperity churches? And what I'll do is I'll educate them. I'll show you exactly why it doesn't work. I'll show you exactly why going to prosperity church doesn't statistically make you more money than not going, right? So basically it doesn't, it doesn't deliver on its promises. They don't realize that that's exactly why it works. It works because it doesn't deliver on its promises, just like gambling doesn't deliver on its promises. It gets you addicted to the surplus enjoyment of having a fantasy of what will overcome your alienation and not giving you it so that you can maintain a certain uh, struggle in your life. So you, you have a fantasy of what will work, but you never, because if you did get it, you'd realize that being rich doesn't overcome your alienation, right? So that would be devastating. It allows you to have the fantasy while keeping you stuck in the place you're at. This is why, you know, in the arguments that you see between people who say, for example, capitalism works, right, as a system, and it works because over time it creates more technologies that are beneficial to people, everybody's wealth gradually gets more and more, right? And then in contrast, there are people who say capitalism doesn't work. It generates repeated cycles of repressions and depressions and, you know, alienation, et cetera, within society rather than the psychoanalytic idea that capitalism works precisely because it doesn't. And it, it doesn't work in a particular way, I would say in an unhealthy way, but it doesn't work in a particular way. And in the same way with relationships, it's not like relationships work or relationships don't work. A good relationship works in a way that doesn't work, but it doesn't work in a good way. A bad relationship doesn't work in a bad way. So two people who are abusive or one person who's abusive to another and they stay within this cycle, the not working keeps them intertwined. But the answer is to find something that doesn't work in a good way, right? So coming back to they live, you see the surplus enjoyment, which is very strangely, the very thing that we're doing and we're enacting. And what that means is it means that if, for example, you're in a relationship and you're always fighting with the person, right? You're always fighting with them, but you're imagining a much better relationship, right? You're imagining this really good relationship without conflict, right? That fantasy, that ideology of this really good relationship without conflict 
covers over the fact that you're enjoying the arguments. There's something in you that gets something out of the dysfunction, but it's disavowed. You don't see how you're getting your enjoyment from the dysfunction. Now, in self-help, as I said, self-help will come along and say, we'll help you either make that relationship really good or help you get another relationship. By the way, that might be exactly what you need, right? But self-help, that's what self-help does. From A to B, what does grace do? Grace doesn't get you from A to B. Grace says A does not equal A, right? Which means grace says you don't have to do anything except confront yourself, right? Grace says, we'll have a space where you accept yourself, where you experience acceptance from others. And as you're able to not move from A to B, but just be and look at where your surplus enjoyment comes from, i.e. come to know yourself, have grace for yourself so that, because when you don't have grace for yourself, you get into self-denial, you tell false stories about yourself, you cover over your surplus enjoyment. But when you're in a community of grace, you can confront your surplus enjoyment, confront yourself. And in realizing that you are alienated from yourself, that's what A does not equal A means, right? You are not who you say you are. You, there is a certain form of uh, antagonism within you that prevents you from being this whole and complete individual, which is what ideology promises. You confront your surplus enjoyment and the very confrontation with that surplus enjoyment is what makes you a revolutionary subject a subject that can make changes right so the not having to do anything except confront put on the glasses and see your surplus enjoyment is what is transformative okay so why is it that simply confronting your surplus enjoyment is transformative uh, I'm going to use an example I've used in a, a previous seminar a few months ago, so forgive me. Uh, it's an example from Alanka Sapancic uh, and her book, What is Sex? I think she uses it in another book as well, but it's in that book. And it's a little story about this man, this horrible guy who's aggressive and lazy and comes home from work, sits down on his chair, turns on the TV and shouts to his wife, here, get me a drink before it starts. And the adverts are on the TV said he's got the remote control, turns it to a certain channel. Well, she brings him a beer, he drinks it, the adverts are still on, and he says, get me another drink before it starts. And she gets him another drink. The adverts are still playing, he drinks the beer, he says, listen, get me another beer before it starts. And at that point, she cracks up and says, get your own beer, you think I'm just here to serve you? And he looks at her in the eyes and he says, oh, there you go, it started, right? So the whole point of the story is you, the listener, think that he's waiting for something to start on the TV set. But what he's saying is, get me a beer before you start arguing, right, before we start fighting. Now, the interesting thing about the story for Sapancic is that the guy experiences himself as a passive recipient of the argument, right? He's going, it's going to start, you're going to kick off. He's passively there. But of course, the whole thing is we, the viewer, see that he's not a passive recipient of the argument. He is an active contributor to it. He's the one who gets it started, right, um, by his actions. And Sapanchit says that 
in a way, for a neurotic, psychoanalysis is designed to take you, imagine you're that guy, to confront the enjoyment you get out of some dysfunctional situation. So for example, if you constantly think that there is an intruder outside your house, right? If you think that once or twice, whenever you hear a noise, that's totally fine. It's non-pathological. But if every time it's dark and you hear the slightest little creak, you think someone's hiding in the cupboard or outside your room or outside the window, the psychoanalytic method will gradually go, what are you getting out of that belief? What are you, what, what's like, what is that covering over? What is, what is, what is the enjoyment in that? Now you don't know you're enjoying it. You don't, in fact, it feels exactly the opposite, but there's something that you're getting out of it. And the idea is that when you're confronted by the enjoyment, by what it's covering over, when you're confronted by that, the confrontation itself gets you over it. It breaks it. Right. As soon as you kind of are confronted with that. So in the movie, they live when you're confronted with your surplus enjoyment, you are now broken free of being a passive, obedient citizen. You can now be a revolutionary subject. Um, and if that was a dream, so let's imagine I had the dream and I go to my analyst and I say to the analyst, yeah, I had this dream where I was, I was at work. I was really busy. I was really stressed and I came home and I said to my girlfriend, can, can I have a drink before the game starts? And she got me a drink and then I asked her to get me another drink before it started. And then I asked her weirdly in the dream to get me another drink before it started. Um, and then she started shouting at me. Now at this point, the analyst's intervention would be, oh, and so it started, right? And when the analyst says that line, oh, and so it started, I immediately would be confronted with the fact that, oh, that's what I was waiting for. Oh my goodness, am I enjoying that? Am I getting something from that? Which would change it. Um, I had this actually a decade ago when I was in analysis and I was talking about a relationship that was very chaotic. And I said, I said it's like a heroin relationship. I'm just addicted to the highs. And my analyst said, or the lows. That's all they said. I did Lacanian analysis. They said very little. There was usually very little said. So, you know, whenever those three words, or the lows, three words, and maybe that was the only three words that were spoken in that session. It might have been the only three words that had been spoken in the last four sessions, right? As soon as those three words were said, or the lows, I was confronted with how I was getting an enjoyment out of the dysfunction itself. And in that confrontation with that surplus enjoyment, with that truth, that shifted something in terms of that relationship. Didn't have to do anything. I just had to see my own alienation and the enjoyment I was getting from the alienation. And what this does is it then reorients you in a way in which you are in a better position in relation to this fundamental lack at the heart of everything. And we can call this salvation. And why I call it salvation is because it is a fundamental reconfiguring of how we desire as a subject. 
and it's a way in which we can operate in the world while not being of it. Uh, most forms of uh, popular therapy or what's called mental health today is designed to help you integrate better into your life, uh, to help you integrate better into your relationships or into your work. Uh, recently, I heard Jordan Peterson talk about his therapeutic practice. Um, he's a depth psychologist, and he talked about how he's worked with uh, people who are quite high up in business, who often suffer from insomnia, and who don't take enough holidays, and this causes a lot of uh, bad symptoms in their lives. And one of the things Peterson said is he helps those people see that actually to be more productive, if they want to be more productive as a CEO, they actually need sleep and they need to go on holiday, spend time with friends. And what basically is being done here is trying to see the symptoms. So say the symptom is insomnia, which might actually be the protest that the individual does about being in this system, right? This type of therapy is designed to make you more productive, fit more deeply and to take the symptom, which might be, as I say, a protest against a form of life that is destructive to you and using that symptom, which is the protest, as a type of uh, conservative way to get you to be more effective as an economic subject, right? Um, in psychoanalysis, the idea is to help you enjoy your symptom not use the symptom in order to integrate better into the world, but to help you realize that you as a subject are never fully integrated into the world. There is an inherent type of alienation in which you're in the world, but not of it. And that the idea is how do you enjoy that alienation and how to make it productive for you and society as a whole, not always trying to overcome it. So with ideology, it's always promising you can overcome it. The reason why so many people self-sabotage and don't grab the ideological object is because unconsciously they're actually enjoying their alienation. It's just a form of alienation that is profoundly destructive because they haven't found a right relationship with it. That's why a lot of people who are successful tend towards having perverse or psychotic structures because they, um, uh, they're more likely to want to grab the ideological object than someone who is neurotic. But anyway, that's beside the point. Um, maybe that's taken us too far afield. Okay, so what I'll do is I'll just sum up where we've got to in these two seminars. The idea of ontological unknowing is the idea that there is a fundamental unknowing in the other, in ourselves, and in reality itself. And this is called dasting. And this dimension of the abyss that is essential. It's not contingent. It is uh, an eternal reality. We can even give it the signifier God as that which is eternal, that which is uncreated, that which is an inexistent thing. Um, this is the source of our freedom, and this is the source of our alienation. And religion in its sacred and secular forms is ideological trying to render this lack into loss, saying, oh, this alienation is contingent and can be overcome in X, Y, or Z ways in this life or in the next life. 
but rather a radical approach, a paratheological approach, is to see this alienation as essential. And what we need to do is not do self-help, which tells us how to get from A to B, right? Ideology being the kind of, this is the, the B, right? The, the, the destination that will make you happy, how to get from A to B, but rather to embrace and experience grace. Grace being the realization that A does not equal A, that, that who we are is a type of conflict with ourselves. We have a chaos within us. We are, in the words of James Joyce, a chaosmos. And seeing that and embracing that and in that embrace, finding a type of freedom that allows us to be healthier individuals, to find healthier ways to sacrifice, healthier ways to have alienation and conflict uh, within us that brings life to us, what's called drive, to not satisfy this drive, but rather to allow it to continue to eternally generate knowledge and inventions and relationships and possibilities and adventures in a process that never ends. So we have dusting, which is that abyss. We have ideology, which is the covering over of that abyss, the rendering of this inherent lack into a contingent loss. And then we have grace as the place where we can accept that we are accepted we can confront our surplus enjoyment, confront our alienation, and in confronting it, turn it into something that is valuable and that is good. And the work of parotheology is trying to create those spaces of grace, and that's something that we'll take up in a future seminar. So hope that was interesting. Uh, thanks for joining us. If you're interested in these, we have uh, groups where we discuss these ideas on my Patreon. Love you to have you involved. That's how I support myself. And because of many of you, I'm able to do this for a living, and I am eternally grateful for that. Um, so there's lots of stuff that you can get there. Or, as I say, these monthly seminars are free on YouTube. So thank you. Take care. Bye bye.